Welcome to episode number 23 of the Marine Layer Podcast with TJ Mathewson and Lyle Goldstein. On today's pod, we're joined by Brock Hewer to host on Seattle Sports 710 in Seattle. Also a national college football analyst on Fox Sports. You see him all over the place. We'll chop it up with him about some Mariners baseball over the first weekend. We got to talk to Brock yesterday, so we've got a full series to digest with him uh, and get his take on this team in the season and really how it's going to roll out. We got a lot of segments for you. We got our three Mariners storylines. We got our first umpire of the week. We'll take a look around baseball with our MLB wraparound. As always, we will close out the show with Speak Your Mind. Let's get it rolling. And we welcome you into this episode of the Marine Layer Podcast here on Tuesday, April 4th, and the season's over. Burn it down. Trade Julio for prospects. It's time to flip Teoscar. It's probably time to flip Luis Castillo, too. I mean, they're one and four. There's no recovering from this. You'll hear it in my um, in my speak your mind. I really did not miss Twitter during Mariner games. I mean, man, there's so there's some people who I swear they have some drafts saved in case the Mariners come out and struggle to hit the ball in the first weekend. They're like, oh, I got this banger. <laughs> I got this banger. <laughs> Boom. You didn't have any bangers though, Lyle. There, it was a, it was a pretty it was a pretty calm. I don't think we I don't think between the two of us there was there was a rage tweet. There was not. I don't think. I think it was very very relaxed. No, I feel like usually the two of us are pretty good about not rage tweeting. Like whether it be on our Marine Layer podcast Twitter account or our own Twitter accounts, we're usually pretty rational at least online. We were at the game last night, being Monday night, and I was getting a little annoyed that Matt Festa was throwing like fifty pitches out of the bullpen. I mean. The Mariners weren't going to come back and win that game. I guess I was just rolling my eyes a little bit because I felt like three three runs was possible to come back from. But again, that's neither here nor there. It's not the end of the world. But yeah, we're not firing off ridiculous tweets like some of these people. So we were also at Saturday too. Another uh, Mariners loss. Quick though. I mean, first takes on the pitch clock. It goes by. You don't like. You don't notice it. The game's faster, but you really just don't notice that. Like. I wasn't like paying attention to it all that much, except probably my favorite moment of the weekend, since there are really no wins to talk about, is Karen Shack getting counted down twice over the course of the, the first four games of the season against the Cleveland Guardians, which was really entertaining, especially on Saturday. The rattling, though, did not work. It, it was really fun to see, though, on Thursday. <laughs> oh, the rattling worked Thursday. It just didn't work Saturday for Karen Shack. He couldn't do he couldn't do his whole like pre. Uh, his pre-pitch routine where he flips the ball up into the air. He puts it off the back of his glove. He he rubs his his hair, probably coated full of some sticky substance that he's lathering up the ball with and, and then taking his time on the mound and like adjusting his pants and, and, and fluffing up his jersey before he finally looks in and, 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 and wiggles around and looks towards his catcher. And he couldn't do that, and that caused him to airmail a ball to the backstop. For the longest time, baseball's worst kept secret was that the Astros were cheating and then it got discovered. Now baseball's worst kept secret is that James Karinchak is doctoring baseballs. Like, it's just about every time out that he does it. In fact, I counted on Thursday. I think he went to his hair seven times in his outing. And then once Ty France hit the home run, he got knocked out of the game. But, I, like, it's it's blatantly obvious he does it. 
I don't know how he hasn't gotten caught for it yet, especially when pitchers always get checked. But who knows? If I had to put some money on it, I would bet he gets caught for something sooner rather than later. And who checks the the player's file? Well, it's umpires. Right. And what do we love on this podcast? Nothing more than MLB umpires. Hey, so hey, there's a teaser. Stick around there for is. later in the show, and you're going to hear is. some umpire talk. Oh, 100%. 100%. Okay, Lyle, let's get into our three storylines for the Mariners this week. Storyline number one, Robbie Ray goes on the injured list after his first start on Friday night. Went three plus. I mean, it, his stuff wasn't really there. He was sitting low 90s on his fastball, didn't throw his splitter. He was he was struggling with his command. He walked five guys. He's on the 15-day IL with a left flexor strain. That's right here in the forearm near your elbow. It gives some cause for concern and really something the Mariners did not want to see, especially from a guy who's thrown the ball as well as Robbie Ray was down in spring training. And now they'll be without him for about a month and a half, it seems like. It's not great. We didn't think that all five starters would make every start again this year. That just doesn't happen. It never happens in one season. It certainly doesn't happen two seasons in a row. But to have it happen this soon, that's the killer. Now, the flip side of this is it is a really, really good thing the Mariners didn't trade Chris Flexen. Because I'll tell you what, they'd be in deep shit right now if they had traded Chris Flexen. And a lot of years when they have one of their starters go down, they have to scramble and find guys who probably aren't fit to be starting long-term, starting. But it's not somebody like Robert Duggar starting anymore. Like, we know Chris Flexen can start, so it's not great to lose Robbie Ray. You said it. He looked like the best arm on the team in spring, but at least you have somebody to fill in the gap. And let's remind people, Bryce Miller is not George Kirby. They are eons apart when it comes to starting pitching prospects for the Mariners bringing up Kirby last year. It's nowhere close to the same scenario. Like, we don't know what Bryce Miller does in the big leagues. Bryce, uh, George Kirby was about as ready as could be when he was coming up last year. Bryce Miller, I mean, you could argue he he looks good, but it's not the, it's not the same level. So I don't think you can really argue that. He may start as a reliever. We don't know if he's going to profile as a reliever long term. He could be a starter long term and take that five spot. Yeah, we don't know. Bryce Miller does not have the command Kirby has. He's not throwing with the velocity and command combined that Kirby did in the minors. He doesn't have the same stuff that Kirby has. It, yeah, it's not the same at all. Like Bryce, like let's not knock Bryce Miller too much. This guy could be really good if everything clicks, but it's not the surefire prospect that Kirby was. Last thing on this point, it's a good thing Chris Flexen came in. Uh, the the one highlight of that Friday night came in through four innings uh, and is stretched out and ready to go right in that uh, spot. He will be pitching, if you're listening to this, when it comes out tonight or today, actually, against Shohei Otani, depending on when you're listening about this. They're not going to – it's the the difference between Chris Flexen and Robbie Ray. Like, there is a difference there. But Chris Flexen is a major league starter. In our starting pitching preview, we highlighted, hey, we're high on his slider. If he's able to really highlight that pitch this year, he looked good when he came in and pitched in some quote-unquote garbage innings on Friday – so if he can just, you know, hold serve in the rotation, the it, it, worst case scenario happens with Robbie Ray. You have your starter there. And if you want to add another one at the deadline, that's more of a luxury at this point. Definitely. Also, I just realized we didn't do this right at the start. So I'm just going to say it really quickly for fan for anybody listening. But when we do these season podcasts now, these weekly season podcasts, 
we didn't want to go back and recap every game that just kind of drags on. So we felt like the best way TJ and I could recap all these weeks when we go back and talk about the games is to just pick three big storylines throughout the week. So that's what we're doing with these in-season shows rather than recapping. Everybody knows they started one and four. So we're picking some storylines throughout that week. Okay. Storyline number two, a little bit more on the positive note. Logan Gilbert absolutely dazzled in his first start. He's gotten off to good starts before. He won AL Pitcher of the Month last April when he put up that 0-4-0 ERA. He's off to a phenomenal start here in 2023, shutting out the Guardians in his first outing, even though they lost. But for a guy that got hit really hard last year, this is definitely a positive sign. He actually got to throw his splitter, and he threw it when he when he actually when you're bringing in a new pitch when he actually wanted to. It's like Third time through the lineup, that's instantly when he brought out the splitter. He threw it eight times. He got seven swings and four swings and misses. That's what you want with that pitch. You want him to get to that point where he's comfortable throwing that pitch 15 to 20 times a game and working it in maybe second time through the lineup. Or maybe it eventually turns into his primary strikeout pitch. If he's going to really run up a rate like that, when I went back and I watched some clips of of that splitter that he was throwing and some of the swings he was getting, I mean, there are some pretty decent gaps between the bats and the split. They're really, really struggling to see that pitch out of his hand, and I thought it really complemented his fastball well. And most importantly, Lyle, he did not get hit hard at all. He only surrendered four hard-hit balls the entire game. What was the one thing we were concerned about with Logan Gilbert going into the season? That he gets hit extremely hard, and he didn't do that in his first start, which was great. Like, I mean, so I got to... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that for Logan and in the six shutout innings or the six innings of one run ball that he threw. So he gave up the one run on the home run, but six good innings with the seven strikeouts. Logan Gilbert is very, very tuned in to analytics and saber metrics and pitch shapes, all that stuff. So for a guy that got hit around pretty hard last year, I'll bet you he knows he didn't rank well in terms of hard hit rate and average exit velocity, which is probably a big reason he went and ditched the changeup added the splitter instead, which you just talked about, looked deadly in his first start. And he also changed the shape of his curveball last year, like we've talked about. So when you look at those two pitches, that are basically new offerings that he throws. He has a chance to take another step. And we just saw that in his first outing against a good team. And his curveball was awesome. He threw it 12 times, six swings and four misses. That's pretty good. On six swings, you get four misses. I mean, he's getting he was getting guys to chase it in the dirt, which is what you want with a good curveball, with a nice sharp break down into the dirt, and he's able to rack up three of his strikeouts on that pitch. So in conclusion here for Logan, I mean, at times in his big league career, he has struggled to really put away hitters, which is probably part of the reason he gets hit hard, because guys just spoil, 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 and then barrel a baseball up into the outfield. Well, now you get you know, a little bit more swing and miss in your repertoire and it's going to turn out well for you and you're going to actually able to put hitters away. Let's just see how he does in June because again, I'm very, very encouraged by how his first start looked. But again, he threw really well in April last year and after that is when it started to slightly decrease and decrease and then those summer months was when he really started to get hit hard. So if he's throwing anything close to this in June or July, that's everything you could ask for. So let's just hope this continues as the season progresses. Our third storyline of this first weekend is we're going to highlight one player, but it could be in general. Teoscar Hernandez struggling this weekend, just one for 17 with seven strikeouts. A guy who is supposed to be right in the middle of that Mariners lineup. 
and he just he struggled. He he absolutely crushed the ball on Sunday for his only hit uh, so far here in this season. But as here we here are here recording before Tuesday's game, uh, about ten minutes before first pitch. Again, he's only got one hit and seventeen tries. But it, it it's not only Teoscar Hernandez Lyle combined over the first um, first five games of the season. All the Mariners' newcomers are a combined 5 of 30 at the plate. That's an 060 average. That's that's a really hard number to look at, and would, it, it does highlight the fact, well, yeah, no shit, they didn't score any runs. <laughs> Julio's hitting the ball well. Ty France is hitting the ball well. Cal's hitting the ball well. There's not a lot of other guys doing a whole lot. I mean, those three are hitting, but the rest of that lineup, eh. Yeah, it's been a slow start, and and, and Tay Oscar is kind of the headline of it because he was the headline move of the offseason. People expected him to come in and be an impact middle of the bat lineup, and guess what? He's still going to be. I know there's been a decent amount of cursing on this podcast, and, and maybe maybe TJ and I in this episode just felt like we needed to get it out, but you know what? Like People need to calm the fuck down a little bit about Tay Oscar Hernandez. Again, getting back to Mariners' Twitter. People are already making the Jesse Winker comps. Like, it's been five games. Tay Oscar profiles way better than Winker as an offensive player. Like, let's just let things settle a little bit before we go out and say things like that. He's still hitting the ball hard. He's going to be fine. If there's, like, one thing to nitpick, I'm not wasn't a huge fan of his at-bats. But, again, this is a guy who didn't get as many at-bats in spring training because he went off to go play for the Dominican team. But he also, for the Dominican team, didn't get to play as much as he really wanted to. And that kind of throws a rut in your spring training. You're, you're trying to get your at-bats. You're trying to get your timing down. You go off to play on that just loaded Dominican roster. And you're just lost in the shuffle behind everyone else. And you you don't get the opportunities up there at the plate. And you, you go, you know, the X amount of time without getting enough at-bats. You're going to lose your timing. And he's got to come back. And he's got a like a week and a half until opening day. So, of course, it's going to be an adjustment. He is realizing, though, that the ball doesn't definitely doesn't carry as much. He had a, a high fly ball on Sunday that he hit pretty well, but died up there in the coincidental marine layer up there in center field, hit it to the wrong part of the ballpark. But, you know, he'll adjust, and he still hits the ball harder than probably anybody on this roster, and that's including Julio Rodriguez. Teoscar's striking out just under 37% of the time through five games. And again, it's only been five games. But yes, 37% rate is high. It's going to come down. I'm not saying it's going to come down under 20% because we all know strikeouts are going to be a part of Teoscar's game. But I think as the dust settles, he's going to find his groove and hit the way he has for the majority of his career. Oh, I forgot. I said Cal, Julio, and Ty were going off. Suarez is in that category too. But everybody else... Yeah, they have to pick it up, and it's probably all going to start with Teoscar Hernandez, who's expected to be the second or third best play or hitter on this team. I, I think it's a little irresponsible to worry about offense five games into April because yeah. it, it's, it is harder to hit in April. Uh, pitchers are always ahead of a hitter, always ahead of hitters at this time of year anyways. And again, it's a five-game sample. Like, if we're going to complain about the offense, let's check back in, uh, back in, what do we say, May 1st. So if they're still struggling to score runs on May 1st, then we can have a discussion. If, if I want to say one thing about you know the offense, I mean, I'm not personally a huge fan of Tommy LaStella DHing, but at this point, again, it's been five games, and he's not going to be their full-season DH. 
uh, and he probably won't be on the roster much longer until Dylan Moore comes back. Right. So that's not really something you can uh, nitpick all that much, but let's just, let's pump the brakes here on, on some overreactions, just five games into the season. I got, I mean, I got asked, I get back down here to Corvallis today and, and you know, one of our radio hosts asked me, he's like, TJ, what's up with the Mariners? I'm like, are you worried? I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm not, not yet. If I'm worried, you will know. I, I, I will tell you I'm worried. And I've got news for people too. This might not be what everybody wants to hear, but the Mariners road trip that they're about to go on, they're going to Cleveland to play in progressive field, cold weather. Then they're going to Wrigley Field in Chicago, cold weather. That The offense might have its issues on this upcoming road trip too. Hopefully it results in some more wins and the pitching picks up a little bit. But it doesn't mean that after that road series is a time to just throw away the season either. Because again, let the weather warm up a little bit. And these guys are going to start to hit, especially Teoscar. So again, April is way too early to be making predictions, especially two weeks in April. I like that segment right there. That's a, I think that's a, that puts a, a pretty good bow tie on, this, uh, on our three storylines here for this first week. We don't get to talk about any of these storylines with Brock Heward, um, having recorded it yesterday. But we do we do touch on uh, uh, we do touch on a variety of different things with Brock. Uh, only only had thirty minutes with Brock, so we had to condense it a little bit and uh, fit in his time frame. But it really was great to get to talk to Brock Heward, a quarterback talking about baseball. I, I do love it. I, I mean, I listen to Brock and Sock quite often uh, if I'm trying to get some content on the Seahawks and Mariners. And, you know, Brock's very good when it comes to paying attention to Seattle sports, despite not living in the Seattle area anymore, um, still keeps up to date. And it's and it'll be really good to uh, to hear from Brock. He was fantastic. Like you said, I mean, football is his primary sport, but don't let that fool you. I mean, he knows his stuff on the Mariners. You'll hear it in the interview with us. And the guy loves baseball, which was really cool and why it was really fun to interview him. Just to give people a little bit of a timeline, this segment TJ and I are recording here is Tuesday. The rest of the show, including the interview with Brock, was Monday. So just to piece the timeline together for everybody. But it was a great interview, and we don't want to keep you guys any longer. So let's get to our interview with Brock Heward. All right, we welcome Brock Heward on. Brock, former NFL quarterback, college football analyst for Fox Sports. And if you want to hear him talk about the Mariners, you can tune into the Brock and Salk show every Monday through Friday on 710 Seattle Sports. Brock, it's great to have you on. Brock and Salk shows back. Third time's a charm. Uh, how yep. much did you miss Salk's rank segments? Is that what brought you back? Uh, yeah, that would be let's see, a zero. Yeah, that be a, that would be a zero. There was there was no ranking in the first iteration. There was no ranking in the second iteration. And then to be fair, when I left, uh, we still did the podcast like you guys are doing. We did a weekly podcast for a year plus, and I realized how desperately. He needed uh, the reunion. He needed us. He needed us back. Rank ranked grew in the Mike Salk show, and we do have a lot of fun with it. It's an outlet for him, and you know, just as a friend, we all have friends that we, you know have quirky, strange, weird stuff in their lives, and we you know kind of allow them. Uh, it's kind of how I feel with ranked when it comes to the Brock and Salk show. Is the best way to do ranked? Uh, do you have honorable mentions, or can you only do one through five? I mean, there's I mean, some contention there. Yeah, I mean, Mora is very linear. Okay, Mora would like one through five. I'm not quite as strict and linear as Mora, but then Salk and Justin just go crazy, right? I mean, 
it's not even honorable mentions. It's, you know, sometimes 15, 20, 30 deep, kind of like an all league team in high school. There should be like an all league team, second team, all league, and maybe a few honorable mentions. But once you stretch to 10, 15, 20, we're just kind of, I don't know. We're just kind of, kind of losing the merit of it all. But as I said, you give them their outlets. Uh, they end every show with it. They have a blast doing it. And they certainly know their, those two uh, know their music inside and out for sure. Speaking of rankings, Brock, if we want to pivot this over to baseball and, and get the, the subject of the Mariners sort of on the top of our minds, you posed this question on Twitter the other day, and it really was a fantastic question. And I don't think people the age of Lyle and myself, age 25, can really encompass this of, of what this question is. But the question you proposed was, where does this Mariner season rank in terms of anticipation? You got a lot of response to that. What is your answer to that question? Yeah, this this probably goes back to, so in the mid-90s, I was in college at the University of Washington, right? In 95, I was a freshman at UW living in Haggett Hall and and feeling that dorm just just rock, you know, A, through an earthquake and B, through the Mariners <laughs> run there and just uh, th- that amazing run. And to have the Griffies and the Buners and the A-Rods and those guys. And then, you know, a few of them washed uh, away and moved away. And here comes Ichiro in a, a season in 01 that nobody saw coming. I, I'd say it's somewhere between those two. It's not an identical to either of them because I think we saw last year coming. I think the foundation was being built. And you could see, boy, if Julio pops and this rotation pops and stays healthy, they've got a chance to end this drought and they did, and not only end it, they go to Toronto and, and have two magical games and and three amazing games that didn't go their way against the Astros, but still remarkably competitive games. So I would say it's it was kind of a morph between, you know, the time you guys were born and then when you were newbies uh, way back when in 01 and 02. So, okay, so let's say your order would go probably 96-02. Yep. This year. And then maybe even last it's season. Safe rating. Yeah, yeah, probably even right. then last season where there was some expectation, but you didn't fully know how all of it would come together and, and what it would all look like. I think even though the first four games of the season notwithstanding is kind of disappointing start, I think we all feel like, all right, we, we know this Mariners team, right? We know who Julio Rodriguez is now. We know who Logan and Kirby are now. We know who Anthony, no, not Anthony, I always call him Anthony. Anthony Munoz was the old left tackle. Andres Munoz is on the back end with Brash. And so we know so much more of this team. And now we got to hope that they can handle expectation and that some of these new pieces are not Jesse Winker, right? That some of these new pieces are actually difference makers. And, you know, we'll, I think, learn that here pretty quickly in the first couple months. We're recording this here on a Monday. And you guys just did your show, recap the first Mariners weekend against the Guardians. You mentioned Teoscar Hernandez. That's a good segue here. How many people this morning were trying to tie the Jesse Winker comps to Teoscar? And obviously, it's only been four games, and people are kind of jumping the gun. But how many how many fans this morning were kind of itching to say something about Teoscar? Well, when the, th- when the newbies go three for 40... And he was, what, one for 14? It certainly gives them some fodder for like, hey, hold on a second. You know, we heard this whole thing last year about this platoon with Winker and look at his baseball card and his track record's amazing and 900 OPS against righties and yada, yada, yada. And then he came to this stadium 
and he hit it and he was like, oh, good Lord, like this marine layer in April and May is real. And I think it affected him. Playing every day affected him. He's not a defender. Teoscar's not a plus defender, but he's not a negative defender as Winker was. And it actually played some pretty good defense in his opening weekend um, other than a, a throw that went a little errant and and was just unfortunate. But, no, I wouldn't say – yeah, I think with what they did last year, there's going to be some benefit of the doubt. Last year, they got no benefit of the doubt. The 19 years that preceded it, they got no benefit of the doubt. But when you win, you get to the playoffs, 156,000 people show up in the first four days, you get a little more time, a little more benefit of the doubt. But the Colton Wongs and the A.J. Pollocks and the Cooper Hummels and the Teoscar Hernandez, they got to feel what – April in that that stadium on a cold weekend can feel like, and it's not idyllic for hitting a baseball at times. What did really just jump out to you out this weekend, if there's one thing? Who? I mean, the injury to Robbie Ray is the one that just jumps out, that, that you knew, right? If we would have taped this in the six months ago um, or in the offseason, the three of us would have said, we know that this pitching staff, based on history, is not going to start every game every time out, all five starters, as they did a season ago. We knew that that was not going to happen. But to have it happen 11 innings into the season, that one that one strikes you. That's kind of like a loud Robbie Ray grunt right at you, like, oh, crap. You know, I knew that this was going to be inevitable. It was going to be a lat, going to be a shoulder, going to be a, a finger blister, going to be something, a hamstring. Something is going to keep one of these five uh, away from a start or two or a month. But to have it be in that forearm for Robbie Ray, who came out this spring and just was blistering, right? I mean, I think rocking all of us, 97 on the radar gun, this first couple times out in Peoria, like that just was unheard of. And unfortunately, as I said, 11 innings, 11 innings into this season, that was the resounding takeaway. That was the resounding shot. That was the resounding Okay, I think now you see why Jerry Depoto and Justin Hollander didn't trade pitching assets, you know, didn't move uh, Marco or Flexen or Bryce Miller or, you know, some of the starting pitching depth they have because inevitably you're going to have to have that depth this season and you're going to have to have it now. Yeah, I think we're all in the same boat. Like, you can't expect all five starters to make 32 starts, right? But to just see it happened the way it happened to Robbie Ray this weekend. And it wasn't even like he exited in the middle of his start. We all kind of just woke up on mm-hmm. Saturday, got the alert, and we're like, oh, he's out. And to have it happen so soon is, yeah, it's a little bit of a blow to the team for sure. Yeah, and that maybe explains some of the control issues, the five walks, again, stuff that you just didn't see in Peoria. Uh, obviously, there's going to be a heavy watch. You know, I think the other takeaway is Jared Kelnick, you know, and – you know, Shannon Dreyer had said to us a couple months ago, and it has stuck with me when I asked her, I said, okay, Shannon, give me give me a Jared Kelnick comp, right? We're in NFL draft season. We may get to that at the end of the podcast. We'll see how much I talk um, and how much time we have left on this thing. But in NFL draft, you know, season, it's always, okay, who's this guy's comp? You know, who does he compare to? Who's his size, his strength, his background? You know, who does he project to? And I remember asking Shannon this offseason, like, Shannon, who is – the Jared Kelnick success story. Who's the one that had 600 at bats first couple years up young guy struggled mightily, but then turned it and became a difference maker, became a stud. There's not really that guy. You know, I'm like, what of all these years, really last 10, 20 years, 
well, there have been guys that have struggled and become good players, but to become an elite player, become, uh, you know, some of these young superstars, a Julio Rodriguez, you don't, you don't see that. They usually don't struggle for 600 major league at bats the way that Jared did the first two years. So going to be a heavy watch. That's the other takeaway from the weekend. Started nice, right? A little single Friday night, a little opposite field double. Great to see. And then three strikeouts and then uh, a moment or two that you like to see hit a fastball just didn't square them up and so that will that will be a watch here the first five six seven eight weeks of this season because he's going to be given ample opportunity to pay off what he did this offseason all the stories written about in the spring but ultimately you got to hit big league pitching ultimately you got to hit big league fastballs ultimately you got to through 700 800 at bats show that you can hit at this level and and I think as a Mariner fan, you're really rooting for that to happen. Brock, the comp we've used on this podcast, which Lyle came up with, and I think is is a really good one, is Kyle Tucker of the Astros. I don't think he struggled necessarily for about 600 plate appearances, but he did struggle a decent amount when he came up for Houston. And now you could argue, I mean, he's a top 10 outfielder yep. in all of baseball, which is best case scenario for Jared Kelnick. But I think, you know, that that's a bit of a stretch to ask a 23-year-old, like, hey, yeah, you're going to turn around this full season and turn into Kyle Tucker in one season. I, I, I just don't think that's a, that's a realistic expectation. But if we're thinking of really what is a successful season for Jared Kelnick, are we talking uh, I don't know, 20 home runs in a, in a 230 average and the strikeout rate is not 30%? That would be a statistically enormously significant step forward off of the career 168. I think he's sitting at right now. So, yeah, you give me 70 points on a batting average. You give me 20 home runs. We know he's going to steal bases. We know he's going to get an extra base. We know he can play a good left field, which is maybe where that Tucker comp, who's an elite defender with a big-time arm as well. And I'll tell you this, Lyle, why don't you send me uh, some of your comps? You know, that will be a good uh, maybe Tuesday on the Brock and Salk show. Uh, I can give you guys a little pop and say, you know what? There was a name that uh, that a friend of mine came up with and a podcast came up with and we're talking. And let's hope, you know, Jared turns it here quickly. Let's hope against these angels, he finds some some hits. Because I think the big thing for him with young players is when you look up at that board and you try not to, it's kind of like a golf leaderboard, right? In On the PGA Tour, oh, I'm not going to look at that leaderboard. I'm not going to look at the leaderboard. I got to kind of see where I'm at. And when Jared steps in the box and you see 168, 177, 152, like, come on, you know, like it would do, I think, a lot here in the first few weeks of the season. If you can get some hits under your belt, you can just start to get that batting average to bounce. It can be in that 230, 240, 250 range. If it's anywhere around there, that is a significant step forward for him. Oh, I'm happy to set it down. Oh, go ahead, Lyle. No, I was going to say, I'm happy to send you some comps. And and these aren't perfect player comps, but a couple of the examples I've used is, so Kelnick's only 23, right? And he came up so early. He played 27 games above A-ball before he debuted. Like, he didn't have a ton of time in the high-level minor league. But, like, an example I use is, is I'm not saying he's going to turn into this by any stretch. But when Aaron Judge was 24, when he debuted, like, his WRC plus was 62. So he was, like, nearly 40% below league average as a hitter at 24 where Kalnick's 23, and then Judge started to kind of figure it out at 25, or Jose Ramirez is another example. His age 23 season is when he figured it out. He really struggled before that. So, like, again, I'm not saying Kalnick's going to turn into those guys, but I also do use those guys as points of, you know, it's just a little early for everybody to be kind of writing them off already. 
Yeah. Nope. I, I like all of those names. Um, the challenge is once these hundreds of abats and hundreds of abats and hundreds of abats, right? And and these opportunities come at some point. You got to maximize them. At some point, you're just not going to continue to get hundreds of abats versus you know making making a move. And for an organization that I think has still some assets, it certainly has some money to spend um, to go out and do you know I think what they want to do. And and I think in a perfect world that would have been. Uh, Brian Reynolds this offseason, but that perfect world and that perfect trade and that perfect value did not come anywhere near fruition. And thus you you shelve it and you move ahead and, and you kind of see kind of like a market, right? You kind of see what that market's going to be willing to bear here uh, as we get into this 2023 season. Last Jared question for me, Brock, but you guys got to sit down with him at spring training, sit at the table and and really, you know, have these conversations with these players, which you just don't get over the course of the regular season when you're talking to him on the phone. Uh, but down there at spring training, you're all sitting at the table and you guys mm-hmm. really have good conversations with these guys. Jared's was he, he was good. I mean, he he sounded different. He sounded in a, in a good place mentally. He changed his training philosophy in the offseason. I mean, what what are those answers for what you guys were asking him? Like, really stood out when I think it was about a month ago when you guys talked to him. Yeah, thoughtful, right? Just a, a thoughtful guy, not a not a bro, right? Maybe came up as a bro at his own brand. Smell you later, all that good stuff. And I think a couple years in, you're humbled a little bit. A couple years in, you got to figure out what is best for me. And and you know, from what I understand, there's a there's some demanding parental uh, you know aspects. I think dad's a a grinder and, and certainly, you know, benefited him on the way up. But, you know, there may be a time where that isn't healthiest, healthiest for me. And I've got to kind of carve my own path and my own mindset. So yeah, you certainly felt thoughtful. The Navy SEAL answer was probably the one that, that resonates that if he wasn't playing baseball, he'd want to do uh, kind of what Pat Tillman did and go and serve. And, and in this case, go and push your yourself to the to the nth degree and see just what you're humanly capable of doing, uh, watching him work out. That didn't surprise me uh, because he, he loves to push and train and the dude is uh, the dude is certainly a physical specimen. So yeah, I think what resonated the most with him was just how thoughtful that every question was, you could see it wasn't just, okay, let me give you a, let me just kind of give you standard fare here. Let me give you what you, you you expect. No, let me think about it and give you a you know fully thought out answer that comes with a couple years of, at times some hard knocks. You know anybody who's been listening to this interview so far, I'm sure knows you're a former quarterback and football is your background. But listening so far, it's easy to tell you do love baseball. So for you, where did that kind of start in your life? Yeah, I love baseball the most growing up. You know, my dad was a football coach. Was around football. I love football. Football was easy. We were in the you know practice field. I was a ball boy. That was everything. But I loved baseball and a chance to pitch. And I was a lefty. And and uh, I probably would have continued to play baseball. But at twelve, I played on a fourteen U travel team, which I never should have done. So that kind of soured the experience. I hadn't started puberty. They all had, I went from the best player to the worst player. And I was like, I'm done with baseball. That just was not much fun for me. So sadly that kind of, that kind of wet the whole deal, the spark, the, the fuse, all of it. And then it was all football and basketball from there. So yeah, growing up, there was always a love, watched all the Mariners games growing up, played wiffle ball relentlessly in the backyard with the older, younger brothers. You know, we built a, out of cardboard, a green monster and the fence in the backyard. We chalked the line. So we were, 
we were all in, we were a football family, but we were all in on baseball. And thus, when this job happened, I had a lot to learn. There's no question. Um, when I started, I had no idea what any of this uh, next level stats and analysis and understanding of just the difference between the grind of a baseball season and 162 versus the every Sunday of football or Saturday. But yeah, I've grown to love it. Grown to love the personalities. You know, Jerry and Scott with us are amazing. They're transparent. They're honest. Um, they're forthright. They, you know, you may not always like what they do and the decisions they make, but they're pretty transparent and pretty clear. And so that was super, super refreshing. That was something this organization needed. And then you get surrounded and you get to be around, as you guys said, a picnic table watching Julio Rodriguez, right? You get to talk to Logan Gilbert, guys that are are immensely talented players, but they're good guys. I mean, there just was not a bad dude in that clubhouse. And that too was a little different than maybe when we started in 09 and some of those years. So I think all those fuel things that fueled my, my enjoyment of covering it, talking about it, and then the success they had last year, holy smokes, was that fun for all of us to be a part of. Were you a pitcher? I was. I was a high leg kick. You know, they called me a young Sandy Koufax back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> and the North Hill Hillbillies, they felt the full brunt of my perfecto when I was 12. That was the that was the mountaintop moment for me. Um, but lefty with control, high leg kick, good little move to first. And then, yep, unfortunately, as I said there, that one year, that one summer, I started praying for rainouts, and that was never, never a good thing, unfortunately. <laughs> Was your comp then Randy Johnson? You're lo- you're you're watching the big leagues and uh, I, you, you're watching the Mariners too. It's like <laughs> yes. okay, I, I can do this eventually, right? I just need to grow a few more inches and and all of a sudden, like I'm I'm in here. Yeah, you know what's funny is I was never like Randy was so tall. I was just a late bloomer, kind of a consistent grower. So it wasn't like I was six five when I was nine, you know, throwing gas. I was I was a lot more probably Mark Langston. Right, Mark Langston had that nice high leg kick and and pretty good control and and you know Dad being a football guy wouldn't let me throw a curveball or anything else so yep it was fastball command and um, and as I said man baseball at that age for me playing the Ording Eagle Ording Eagles the North Hill Hillbillies we were the uh, Puyallup Knights we were the Eagles right we just I think we I played on an Elks team back in the day too, right? All those fun clubs. So that was that was some fun, just grassroots, just pure joy. And now I've got a son that's 13, you know, starting to get into travel ball and trying to keep that same fun, right? That same just joy through the process is now the game is starting to get a little bit harder <laughs> and a little bit more real uh, as they start to get to this kind of puberty age for sure. So you talked about when you took this job, there was a lot to learn. Well, nowadays yeah. on the show, you guys talk to Jerry Depoto every week. You talk to Scott Service. You talk to Jeff Passan every week. I'd have to imagine that makes you a lot smarter about the game, right? It does. It, you know, I think, you know, and for you guys and for, and, and Lyle, I think I've told you this in the past, is for any kind of young and up-and-comer that, that wants to do this and in the media, um, I think the most important you know what what is smart how how is how do you quantify oh he's a smart guy he's he's well informed he's this or that there's there's a lot you know you know you can read you can study you can watch there's a lot of very smart people i think one of the biggest keys is to be curious are you curious 
you know, because if you're curious, you're curious to learn. You're curious to think about things in different ways, see the game from different ways. Most curious people are content creators. You can have a lot of smart people in their content regurgitators, right? They can take it in and, and read it and then they could spit it out or put their own little spin on it. But if you're curious, you can create your own content, which is really what I think the common thread between Salk and I for 14 years of, of doing this on and off at times, but it's what he and I both share is some of that just curious attribute. And when you have that as an analyst, whether it's for college football or NFL preseason games or you know, in baseball, um, that is, I think that's been one of the biggest keys. And when that curiosity disappears and you get tired and you just start regurgitating, probably time for you to find something else to do. And after 14 years, that curious factor is still as strong as ever for, I think him and I and our show and for more and Justin as they produce it. And as we get a chance to, you know, to talk about it on a daily basis. Speaking of curiosity, Brock, uh, curious of something Jeff Passan said and a guy, you know, I, I try and listen to a segment every week. He's incredibly smart, and knows a lot about this game, but he said something that sticks out and, you know, Mariners fans will latch out to whether they do well or they do poor this season. He said they're legitimate World Series contenders. Are they? They are. They are contenders. I think they're one of the 10 teams that's got enough roster and not just the 26 man but into the 40 man and last year they played 59 guys and the reality is and we saw this with Robbie Ray and here's Dylan Morris and there's down on the farm already some injuries that you're gonna you're gonna need more than 26 they didn't have that five years ago didn't have that 10 years ago they do now out of the 30 clubs how many can stretch their rosters to 40 to 50 you know, that, I think that is about 10. And most of those 10 are the better teams and, and are the contenders. Now, they need their pitching to stay healthy. They need their pitching to continue to take steps forward. They need George Kirby to be what Jeff Passan thinks he can be. And that's a Cy Young contender, especially now with Robbie's injury. So they need things to happen. And we can talk about Kelnick and Teoscar and these other moves. They need to they need a pleasant surprise. They need a Suarez and a Julio from last year who were incredibly pleasant surprises that I don't think anybody saw the seasons from in totality that they both had coming. So they're going to need some things to happen. But yeah, I don't think when that comes out of his mouth or Jerry DePoto's mouth or Scott Service's mouth or some of the players' mouths, I don't think that that is, yeah, I don't think that's fool or fool's errand. Um, but I'll say one more thing. They've got to now live and play under that expectation. And that's different. When you're a backup quarterback, which is what I largely was in my life, and you get a chance to start, let's go, man. Right? Let's let's go play. There's nothing to lose. When you're Julio Rodriguez and the first two months of the season are abysmal and you get to turn it around, man, you get to cut it loose. There's nothing to lose. When you now have to play with expectations, and that's one thing this crew has not done particularly well the last few years, you know, play with expectations. It's a different world to live under. And that will be something certainly I will be keeping my eye on. I think there's no doubt that everybody's going to be keeping their eye on it, especially with how things went the first weekend. I mean, it's going to be a story to watch all year because the last couple of years, they kind of played with just something to prove instead of like you talked about real, real lofty expectations. So I think it'll be really, really interesting to see. I know we've only got a few minutes left here with you. So I wanted to leave a few minutes for this because you're a football guy. We're having you on. We thought, okay, we can't let you go without asking one football question here, at least. So, Anthony Richardson at five, right? Not for me. Not for you. No, not 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 for me. Not not for the. 
like if it was one year from now and you had a chance to, to continue to bolster some of the most important pieces of NFL teams, which is your front and your line of scrimmage, right? Like if you had five and 20 this year and you take care of what you have to in, in the second round, you build this team up and then maybe next year you got a chance to do that. I mean, you're not going to have the fifth pick. I sure hope not. Or disaster has fallen upon us in Seattle. Um, I would feel more comfortable a year from now in just the team development and the team growth and the team arrow and trajectory than I do now. I, they just have still too many needs in their front. If you're going to compete with San Francisco, right? And I think the early win totals, Seahawks about eight and a half, San Fran's 11. Like that's a lot in the NFL. And if you're going to close, that's that's like closing the gap. That's almost like a 16-game gap between the Mariners and Astros, right? There's some equivalency there that if you're going to close that, and you know what they are at the line of scrimmage, like I, I can't use the fifth pick on a luxury. I can't use it on somebody that's going to be largely a third stringer, may have a bit role. Um, they've guaranteed Drew Locke a million and a half. You know Geno's deal. This is going to be his team this year. So I, I can't take Anthony Richardson there. If they do, I'm not going to crush it. <laughs> I'm going to say that John and Pete have stones and onions bigger than mine. But I would like to see them address some big people, some difference makers. And if they want to take a risk, I don't know, on a D-tackle out of Georgia at five, I'd feel better about that risk than I would a quarterback at that point. What's funny is that Anthony Richardson is such a good athlete that you could probably, oh. <laughs> during his development year, stick him on the D-line. and He could. I, I, he, would probably he could play pass rusher. He could play strong side linebacker. He could play strong safety. He could play linebacker. He could play H tight end. He could play tight ends. He could play probably receiver. Like he is that freakishly gifted. 6'4, 244, run 4'4, four, four, and jump 40 inches. There's just not been many humans at the combine, and none that have been quarterback that have been able to do those things. No question about it. I mean, just objectively, you're probably right that going after a Will Anderson or a Tyree Wilson or, or, or Jalen Carter, I mean, if you're, if you think he's going to fit with, John and Pete sell with their culture makes a lot yep. more sense. I guess just when I sit and watch Richardson's highlight tape, just off the wow factor, it's like, yep, the eyes pop. That's all. they do. Now, don't watch low light tape, right? Like, if you want to watch a highlight tape <laughs> yeah. and you want to just live on that island, watch that one and yeah. be like, yep, because you put the low light tape on and you're like, goodness gracious, can you hit the broadside of a barn? Like, <laughs> how are you that inaccurate, right? How do you throw to that? How do you make that interception? How do you complete 40? Because, you know, he's got the highest ceiling. That highlight tape, you're right. Like, if you just took 10 of them and put them up against anybody in this draft, you'd be like, all right, let's watch that highlight tape. Mm -hmm. But then if you put the 10 lowlights on, you'd be like, oh, boy. I don't know if we want to watch that one. So, uh, and that's what makes him, and this draft, frankly, so intriguing. Like, this draft over the next four weeks and leading into April, and that Thursday night, unlike last year where, what, Pickett was the only QB in the first round, mm -hmm. it was kind of a ho-hum. This thing with the with the four at the top and Jalen Carter and Will Anderson and just big body. I mean, it's just, it is loaded with storylines galore. And trust me, we're going to hear a lot about them and a lot of rumors, a lot of innuendo. And if Pete and John are doing their job, they're going to be right there stirring all of it up over the next two to three weeks as well. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, both the draft stuff and certainly all of the Mariners stuff as the season goes along here. Well, Brock, this has been awesome. We really appreciate you taking a half hour with us to talk some Mariners, even talk a little bit of Seahawks because 
we love picking people's brains about it. And, and we like to get a lot of different opinions and, and we really appreciate you sharing yours. Well, you two, you keep crushing it. And then you'll realize what happens when expectations rise. It's going to get a little more difficult. It's going to get a little harder. <laughs> but you keep uh, doing what you're doing. Keep being curious, man. Keep loving these teams and digging into it. Uh, keep learning. We can always keep learning. And uh, sure appreciate uh, the opportunity to jump on with you boys today. Thanks so much, Brock. You got it. That was a great interview with Brock Heward. We definitely appreciate all the time he gave us. All right, TJ, as the show rolls on, let's get to our MLB wraparound here. So a little bit of an update on how the rule changes have affected baseball through the first weekend of games. So Jeff Passan tweeted this out here on Monday. Through the first four days of the MLB season, by the numbers, time of game between 2022 and 2023. So he compared. 2022, average time of game, three hours, nine minutes. 2023, two hours, 38 minutes. Slash lines. In 2022, the average slash line, 230, 308, 374. In 2023, through the first weekend, 245, 323, 392. Stolen bases. 29 of 43. Again, this is all through the first weekend of 2022 and 23. So, 29 of 43 in the first weekend last year, 70 of 84 in the first weekend this year. And then, of course, the pitch clock being put into play as well. Those are all the new rule changes and how by the numbers they're affecting baseball. And what the English version of that is, after reading all those numbers, is the game's getting faster and there's more hits, there's more stolen bases, there's more action. I feel like that's all you can ask for, right? More action is important. Like, Take a look at those slash lines, Lyle. Like, what is actually increasing on those slash lines? It's singles on those slash lines, right? The slugging percentage really isn't going up by that much of a factor. It's going up about as much as the batting average went up. So uh, so slugging percentage went up 18 points. Batting average went up 15 points. So it, it's almost all singles, an increase in that line. And that's what you want, right? It's a huge jump. It's just... Uh, we could probably say a majority of it is those base hits through the right side. And we saw that. I mean, the first weekend, Jared Kelnick's first hit of the season (laughs) was a ground ball through the right side of the infield. That would have been a shift out. And instead of being over three on opening night, he is one for three. And we're thinking like, yeah, I mean, with a good at bat, that's what we want for left-handed hitters like Jared Kelnick. And and Cal Raleigh smashed a double, I think it was yesterday, uh, here on a month, as we still record this on a Monday uh, so Sunday's game, that wouldn't have been a shift out. But in that direction, you get kind of kind of nervous. Things have worked. The action has increased. And while we were at the, we were at the game on Saturday, um, we'll go again tonight, but we're obviously recording this before the game. Did you notice the pitch clock at all? No, and I never did in the minors last year either. Again, like it just flies by. You kind of blink, the game ends, and you're like, oh. What a fast game. Did I notice the pitch clock? Not really, but the game was just a better pace and it went quicker. And this isn't even counting the fun aspect of it. If you paid attention to Mariners baseball over the weekend, you could see that whenever James Karinczak came into the game, he was getting counted down and and heckled by 40,000 Mariners fans, which was fantastic. Could you imagine that in a high stakes game late in the season on on a Sunday night baseball? That would just be awesome. Oh, it'd be amazing, especially in the postseason, the World Series if fans are doing it. 
I mean, you see it happen in football when the defense gets or when the crowd gets loud for the defense or in basketball toward the final possessions. Not that fans aren't loud in baseball, but when there's a real incentive, the way a shot clock winds down in basketball, like it's cool. Again, so many baseball purists out there are so all aboard of don't change the game. Don't fix anything. If other people don't like it, well, then they can just deal with it or not watch. No, the game needs to grow. It does need to get faster. And it's been better through the first weekend. Like, I'll be honest, like, like I didn't know how I felt about the uh, changing of the shift. I like it better now seeing it. Yeah, I like seeing more hits. Right. And we think the strategy, like, yes, there's some strategy taken out of the game, but you can still shift. I mean, I saw shifts on Joey Gallo this weekend where you move the right fielder in into that gap in the outfield, and then you shift your center fielder over to right center and your left fielder over to left center field, and that's how you play it. So if you really want to shift, you still can. It just limits what you can actually do. Uh, on the infield, which is interesting. And in terms of violations per game, it's like it's it's under one pitch clock violation per game. So one automatic strike or one automatic ball per game. And you know what's going to happen with that number? Over the course of the season, it's going to go down. You're, you're not going to notice it. You're not going to. So the people who complain, like, you're never going to get everyone to agree on anything. There's going to be 5 10% of people who continue to bitch about these rules, which that's fine if they want to complain. If you took these rules away, 5 to 10% would bitch that the games are too long and and there's never any hits or never any action. So, like, this is, like, this is the best of all worlds, right? Like, what we can do with this. All right, our next thing on our MLB wraparound. Wow, we made it one day into the season. One game before the Angels got their tungsten arm O'Doyle moment. Uh, a little bit of background on this. There's this just absolute banger of a tweet that I forget the the guy who tweeted it out. But it just making a joke at the angle Angels that Shohei Otani did something amazing uh, that hasn't been done since like 1901 by Tungsten Armodoy, who I believe is a made-up player. Um, and Mike Trout homers twice, and the Angels still lose by a score of, of by like six runs, which makes everyone laugh because that happens probably 15 times a game in the Angels season where they have the two best players in the world. They do something absolutely incredible. And the mediocrity of the Angels still makes them lose by four runs to a mediocre team. So that happened already on opening day, where Shohei uh, was the 26th player ever since 1901 with 10 strikeouts and no runs allowed, where he went six innings, two hits, 10 runs, uh, 10 strikeouts, three walks to Oakland. And he's the first player ever to lose in that game in a 2-1 loss to the uh, Oakland A's, which is incredible because the A's are going to lose like 115 games this year. Credit to the Angels for making history on opening day. Listen, they never fail to amaze. Whether it be good or bad, between Shohei absolutely dominating, Mike Trout continuing to etch himself as a first ballot Hall of Famer, probably a unanimous Hall of Famer, but also the Angels continuing to have those two players and never do anything with it. They don't even finish above 500. I mean, it's really unbelievable. You said it. I mean, this Trout Otani stuff, it happens 10 to 15 times a year. Like, it's not like some one-off that happens every other season. No, it happens a lot through the course of their years. And it's just hilarious to watch, especially because, like you said, day one, it happens. Shohei absolutely dominates, and they lose to the team that's going to be the worst in baseball. Like, you think this is motivating him to stay long-term in Anaheim? I don't think so. I'm trying to figure out well, what actually is the most entertaining part of that Angels loss on, on opening week. They did end up taking two of three from the A's uh, over the weekend, which they probably should, again, because 
Oakland is not good at all. But what like what's funnier that opening day for the Angels? Is it that or is it the fact that Anthony Rendon swung on a fan? Now, here's a little bit of transcription from the from the end of the game. Anthony Rendon is walking back to the clubhouse uh, there at the Odotco Coliseum. And some fan probably said something to him. So he, he waves him over right to, to the railing. And he grabs this dude's jersey and says, I have the transcription. So if you don't like swearing, please uh, skip ahead 30 seconds. <laughs> These are the words that Anthony Rendon said to a random fan here on opening day in an opposing ballpark. As he has a fist full of his jersey grabbing him down over the railing, he says, quote, what did you say? Quote, you called me a bitch. Quote, yeah, you did. Yeah, motherfucker. And then as he lets go of his jersey, he takes a swipe at him uh, as he's pulling pulling his head back. If you want to see it, the clip is all over Twitter. Just just Google Anthony Rendon. It, it will pop up. Uh, not a very good look for the Angels. It's under investigation. I, he'll probably end up getting suspended. We haven't seen anything about it yet. But, man, why, why wouldn't Shohei want to stay with, with a team with just a culture like that? God, I laughed so hard watching that. I mean, first game of the year, you're playing the worst team in baseball. You lose, and the first thing Anthony Rendon does after having like three atrocious seasons in Anaheim is he's ready to fight some ace fan in a crowd of 10,000 people. I mean, you just can't script it. It's Yeah, I mean, as we record here on Monday, there hasn't been any word on if or what the suspension will be. We assume he's going to get suspended for this. Listen, I'm not some... I'm not some savant on Major League Baseball's rule book page by page. I can't tell you I can recite all of it for you. But I'm going to assume somewhere in those lines, going into the crowd and trying to fight a fan doesn't exactly comply with their rules. And it's not like this is like a Malice of the Palace situation where Rendon gets an entire beer thrown on him. I mean, a fan, fans say stuff to you all the time, like from the stands. And if you make the $38 million that Anthony Rendon makes this season, it's like, like, dude, like, just bite your tongue and go walk back into the clubhouse. I know, it's irritating. Ever, all the players are human. But I feel like it, if you get just if you just get called a bitch, like, that's it. I don't think that's warranted for you to go uh, go attack someone. And I thought it was just so funny, the comments underneath all those videos where the summation of the comment is, are we really shocked that Rendon swung and missed at that? It's like, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> like, it would have been one thing, like, like I'm not saying it ever anything is ever warranted for a player to go try to fight a fan. It would have been one thing if it was around the all-star break, the angels were angeling like they always do. And they were 10 under 500. They were disappointing. Like always Shohei felt like he was on his way out the door already. And Rendon had kind of had enough. It's game one, buddy. Like you got 161 more to play. Like you're so worried about the results of game one. And what some fan after one contest was saying, you're ready to go fight him in the stands. Well, there's like, one thing we know, Lyle. He's not playing 161 games, that's for sure. Well, he's not because he's, one, going to face the suspension, and two, he never stays on the field. So, yeah, he's probably not playing, he's not playing 161 games. But, yeah, Anthony Rendon, unbelievable. Okay, let's keep rolling along here in our wraparound. Final topic, fantastic news on a more serious note for the non-Major League Baseball players, because for the first time ever, there is a Minor League Baseball CBA, and there has been a significant increase in player salary throughout the minor leagues. Level by level, it goes like this. If you were in the Complex League, 
you were making $11,000 a year before the CBA. Now you're making just over $26,000. It's the same thing in low A. They're going to go from making $11,000 a year to just over $26,000. High A is going to go from making $11,000 a year to just over $27,000 a year. Double A players will go from making just over $13,000 a season to $30,000 a season. So a really nice jump. And then AAA players will go from making $17,500 to a year to nearly $36,000 a year. Look, do I still think there's room to be made in terms of improvements with this? Yeah, these professional ball players, which is what they are, should still be making more than this. But this is a very, very much needed step in the right direction. Let's remember the signing bonuses factor in as well. So uh, the, the big reason for not paying minor leaguers in the first place was because a right. The most, most owners don't own their minor league team. So they're not necessarily making money off it. Second, these players, most of them get signing bonuses in the draft, but it's not always linear, right? If you're a 20th round pick, which is the final round of the current format of the major league baseball draft, you're not getting that much. You, you're not getting enough to really live for a year, especially after, after taxes. So that's why this is so important. And I think some of the most important parts of this is that players will be paid almost year-round. I believe there's a six-week dead period in the winter. But besides that, they will be paid year-round. It has medical insurance. It has pensions for players. You, you're you in the minor leagues long enough. You get some form of the pension. I don't have the CBA you know, all the exact details pulled up in front of me. It was ratified today, by the way, on Monday, a uh, 30 to nothing vote by the owners, which is just really, uh, really fantastic for uh, for them. And this is on top of them now getting, uh, they already have housing, right? That was approved, I think, last year. Everyone gets housing. And if you're a low A or high A, um, if you're a, like, you know, one of the younger players, you also get transportation to and from the ballpark, which has always been a problem. Right. You have 10 guys in a two bedroom apartment just trying to make ends meet because they weren't making any money. Now that will not be an issue. It is really nice because, again, minor league baseball, while it's already grueling enough to begin with, I mean, the conditions used to be so much worse. You used to hear all these stories about how these guys would get a two bedroom apartment for 10 guys to share, things like that, or how guys were legitimately eating like Ritz crackers or, or whatever they could find for cheap at the grocery store for their diets. Well, well, now that they've made real improvements on the food, on the housing, on the transportation, and now on the salary, like it's nice to see that there are actual working conditions for these guys to thrive in their jobs. This is their job. And it's nice to see they have real conditions for it. Like when I was calling games for the Dayton Dragons last year, Maybe they weren't making all the money in the world, but like, for example, the conditions they had were really good. Like the facilities, really good. They had multiple meals a day. They had snacks throughout the clubhouse whenever they needed it. They had transportation. Some of the older guys would drive the younger players. You know, it's much better than it used to be, which is nice to see. And there's a reason some organizations develop players better. It can be as simple as good minor league conditions. I believe this is still the case. Uh, And this is not the case with every minor league team, but I do believe the Dodgers at every affiliate have a food truck, like a chef food truck that follows around every team. So they always are eating what they should be like. It can be as simple as that as just eating good food uh, and the good organizations really managed to hammer it out. I'm glad this uh, this was finally approved. It was approved the day before opening day on Wednesday of last week. Uh, It's really good that these guys are getting a pay bump. And, you know, again, there's still room to be had 
but guys are making livable wages they can actually afford to eat during the season and in the off season as well, where they might not actually have to drive for Uber. They could just work out in the off season. I think that'll work out. I Let's got, transition. I oh, got go one, I got yeah, one thing before you transition. Cause you mentioned that Dodgers food truck. Like it's a real thing. Again, being back in Dayton, when the dragons played the great lakes loons, who are the high affiliate of the Dodgers, that food truck made its way to Dayton. Like I met those chefs first off. They were super nice. They let me have some of the food because they always made a bunch and they had extra. And yeah, it was like really, really well done food. Like you could just see why the Dodgers have all the success they do. One of many reasons, of course, but like those players were getting fed really well, high quality stuff. Like they didn't mess around. Like it, it was pretty cool to see. Think of how much better you play if opposed to, you know, eating, a, you know, a healthy like chicken and rice dish dish opposed to like cheese and crackers that you get from the store. Just like <laughs> just imagine that. OK, well, now we have a first uh, for our in season, uh, our in season segment. We said this was going to be a thing, but we have our first official Russell Wilson umpire of the week. Now you, you take it back and say, OK. Why did we name it that? Lyle, could you give us the breakdown of why we have decided to name our umpire of the week for the great number three in Denver? To win this prestigious award here on the pod, you have to meet one of three requirements. Or you could do all of them if you want, but you've got to meet one of three to be eligible to win this award. You either have to, A, miserably fail to see over the middle. So if you're an umpire, if you're just missing strike calls left and right, or ball calls, that would qualify. Number two, if you refuse to let a play develop, so if you eject a player too fast, if you get into an argument with an opposing manager too fast, that would be refusing to let a play develop. Or number three, if you are just downright insufferable as an umpire. Now, why do those three requirements all become relevant to this topic? Well, Russell Wilson's pretty prone to all three of those things. So we thought, what better name for this segment as to Seattle people, as to umpire haters, to combine it all and our Russell Wilson ump of the week. So, TJ, are we ready to hand out our first award here? I'd like to congratulate Laz Diaz, who was behind the plate on opening day for the Yankees-Giants game. Uh, nothing too impactful. I'm sure we'll get some some better award winners this season. Because overall, from some things that we've seen, Lyle, this isn't the worst performance we've ever seen. But it was notable on opening day. He did make some uh, some rounds uh, on Twitter with some of his missed calls. I mean, he had his first call against Aaron Judge. The pitch is, I mean, a clear three inches outside to, to Aaron Judge. And it's called a strike. And Judge, you, you could just see, is like that... Like, that is not a strike. And then Judge hits the next pitch, pitch over the center field wall for his first home run of the season. Overall, just 90% accuracy. And maybe a worse part, he was 88% consistent behind the plate. If you take a look at this, um, uh, I'm, take, I'm looking at his, uh, his scorecard right here. It's, uh, it's not looking great. So I'd like to congratulate Laz Diaz on taking home the first ever Russell Wilson Umpire of the Week award. Let's dive a little bit deeper on that, too, because you mentioned his called ball accuracy. It was 91%. The MLB average for that is 97%. So he was 6% below league average in that, which is not good. And then in terms of his overall accuracy, he was at eight, or consistency, he was at 88%. MLB average is 94%. Like, that is not good. I'm not saying it's the worst job we've ever seen. 
That is not a good game behind the plate. You might hear us start to get animated on this segment because, again, this is kind of a topic both of us are passionate about. Like, I just don't get what these guys are looking at when they're calling strikes. I know this isn't a perfect example, but the New York Times put out that umpire simulator thing for fans to try of watch these pitches go by and you judge if it's a ball or a strike. I know it's not perfect and it goes way more in depth than this, but I got all of them right. Like, like it can't be that hard to just call balls and strikes right. Like you're supposed to be the best at what you do and you don't do it. Like Laz Diaz, I mean, this guy's in the news a lot and not for good reasons. I mean, like CB Buckner and Angel Hernandez are the two S tier umpires, right? Like they're the two everybody rips on. Laz Diaz isn't that far behind. And I wasn't shocked to see his name in the news in the first weekend. And all you need to do uh, to confirm if this was the right decision, Lyle, decision, I just searched his name in Twitter search and then refreshed a couple times just to see the just the the general fan. They'll show you the popular tweets first, and then everyone else's after that. And I'm staring at a screenshot of four tweets, and I can confirm based on the language they use. Yes, we decided that this was the right umpire <laughs> to choose this week. So congratulations to Laz Diaz, our inaugural. Russell Wilson, umpire of the week. Congratulations, Laz. And there's going to be more to come, believe us. And there will probably be some stories that are a lot better than this one because you give a baseball season 162 games, oh, you're going to see some umpires surface on Twitter. And we're looking forward to it. So we'll wrap up that segment. Let's do our final segment here, TJ. Let's close out the show with Speak Your Mind. Speak Your Mind, Spock. That would be unwise. What is necessary is never unwise. Well, baseball's back. We've certainly been in person for a few games, but what is on your mind over the past week? I didn't miss Mariner's Twitter, Lyle. That's that's what my takeaway is from this week. I was thinking about, man, is there anything non-baseball related that pissed me off this week? No, but definitely watching Twitter during Mariner's games pissed me off again. I mean, there are people who believe the season is over (laughs) <laughs> after the first four games of the season. And I think my my new quote for this season to anybody who wants to overreact over one baseball series, please get a life. Thank you. That's all that's all I have to say. One of my favorite things that I see and and by favorite I'm being sarcastic, not actually, is all the time whether somebody gets hurt, they lose a game. I mean, we saw it in the off season a bunch too. People out there on Mariners Twitter would tweet that picture of Jerry DePoto with the big caption, it's Dipover. Like, I know they're probably half kidding, but it's like, guys, they just played another playoff team. Yes, they lost three of four. Guess what? Cleveland is really good. If this was in June, you wouldn't care. Like, we're, we're as big a Mariner fans as anybody. And, and we get frustrated over the course of a season. There's no doubt. But to be mad after every single loss, like, how do you have the energy to go on Twitter and yell about it all the time? Like, I don't know, Mayor's Twitter is something else. It is. And Twitter overall is something else. I, I've already I've already complained about Elon a lot, but this man thinks he's a messiah and is like, yeah, all the bots are, we're, we're getting the bots off of Twitter. Meanwhile, if you just probably noticed since he took over, the, the bot situation is just so bad. I probably got 25 DMs from, from bots this week trying to sell me crypto or invite me into a group chat or offer me a job. I mean, congratulations. So Twitter overall, Mariners and non-Mariners related, a shit show. But are we surprised? No. Not really. 
I mean, this is what Mariners Twitter is. So, and it's what Twitter in general is. Yeah, we're not surprised. Okay. What's on my mind for Speak Your Mind this week? Well, I kind of had the realization. It's not totally baseball related, but sort of. I've missed out on a lot of good ballpark food over the years. So if you're not following our social media accounts, which you should, you'll have seen that we've done a food review. And we're going to do that a lot over the course of a season. We want to try a lot of the foods around the ballpark, maybe around Seattle in general. It's kind of a fun thing to do. TJ did one this past week. I'll have one upcoming later this week. And I did my review. I'm going to save what what it was for when it actually comes out. But it just made me realize, like, I always try to save all this money at the ballpark because I don't want to spend it on food. I don't want to pay the extra money because they obviously upcharge it at the park. But there's some really good food that you miss out on when you don't live that experience. I mean, especially at T-Mobile Park, they've got some of the best food in baseball. Like, I mean, I feel like that's, it's not a cold, hard fact because it's by definition and opinion, but man, like you've got some real options and the stuff we tried this week, or at least that I had was really good. So it kind of made me realize, yeah, maybe more often than not, I need to live a little bit and get some food at the park. And we're going to record a couple more tonight. So here we're recording on Monday. We are planning on attending Mariners Angels tonight here on uh, Monday, the 3rd of April. So we'll record a couple more and we'll have those coming out uh, later in the week as well. But you're right. It, it, it is really, it's really exciting to go try some of that food. And the Mariners have, I think, arguably the best food options in, in the majors in terms of like the diversity. We talked a little bit with Jason Churchill about that last week, which he thinks could be a negative because you want to be known for something, but also like there's so many things that you need to try with the M's. I mean, you probably have to go to the ballpark 15 times to to really cover everything you'd want to try. And I don't know if I'm going to make it to 15 games this year, but if we do, you know, want to try something new every time and it pushes you out of your comfort zone. So I don't know. I don't know what I'm getting tonight, but we'll, we'll sure find out. What I had for our first food review, it was not something I'd usually get. In fact, yeah, if I had to pick between everything in the park, Probably wouldn't even be in my top five of things I'd look at, but it seemed unique, seemed like it could be a cool review. I had it and I was like, oh, that's that's really good. So just made me realize, live a little bit at the ballpark. If you go to a lot of games like we do, you don't have to spend money on food every time, but it is good to live a little bit. So I think that's been a nice experience and I'm glad I did. Okay. I'm glad you did. I, I'm glad you lived a little bit too loud because I think that's what I always tell you to do a little bit too much. It's like, hey, dog, relax. Put a smile on your face. And hey, you what, it, so it's what's, good job. It's what's good wrong? Job. What's wrong with getting Subway at the LA Public Market? Well, uh, a lot of things. Uh, okay, so that means we're getting an Uncrustables review before the end of the season from you, right? Because I think we need to be on brand. Oh, I think we have to because they sell them at they sell them at the park now. I think I'm going to have to right. So sometime this year we will be getting an Uncrustable review. You can book that down. I can't wait. That's going to be my highest score of the year. Bank it right now. I would not okay. be shocked. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't either. I think that'll just about wrap up this edition of the Marine Layer podcast. You guys know the drill. If you want to listen to the full podcast, you can listen on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and Google. If you want to watch the full video podcast, it'll all be on YouTube and on social media. If you want to follow us, you can do so on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube shorts at Marine Layer Pod. For TJ Matthewson, this is Lyle Goldstein. As always, we thank you guys for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.